It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. And a very good Monday morning uh, to you. And I have to say, it is good to be back. My thanks to John Paul for sitting in over the last uh, two weeks and looking after the show so well. He's back taking your calls this morning at 0818 103 103. And I've arrived back nice and refreshed. I got away to the sun uh, for 10 days and it was just lovely to feel sun on your bones. And literally from the minute I came back, it's been raining. Welcome home. (laughs) And it hasn't stopped raining since. And actually, this week people look at the weather forecast especially those people who will be going along to the National Ploughing Championships officially getting underway uh, tomorrow and already in uh, Rathaniska in County Leash where the ploughing will be held over the next uh, three days while they were setting up last week I've seen some video footage of mud, mud and more mud and very deep puddles of water so it already looks uh, to be quite messy before the event has even started and Met Aaron are forecasting that the weather forecast doesn't bode well for the next uh, three days. Rain is expected uh, tomorrow with freshening southwesterly winds although it won't be a chilly day tomorrow they're saying temperatures will be around uh, 20 degrees and then more heavy uh, showers forecasted on Wednesday even though it will be mixed with some sunny intervals and it's going to be much the same on uh, Thursday. So every single day this week if you're going to the ploughing it is going to be umbrellas rainproof gear and uh, lots and lots of uh, wellies but it doesn't It never seems to deter people. They go year after year and uh, they're expecting this year that uh, at least 100,000 visitors from home and abroad are expected to attend and it will make it the largest National Ploughing Association event in the world. We love our ploughing, our annual ploughing championships, that is for sure. 0818 103 103. Did you watch the Late Late Show on Friday night? I have to say I was quite excited. It's a long time since I've been that excited sitting down to watch at the Late Late Show and there was a lot of anticipation for Patrick Keelty and I was actually thinking of him in the hours leading up to it saying God I wonder how he's feeling is he a bag of nerves I was also very much thinking of Ryan Tuberty and wondering how Ryan Tuberty was feeling and was he going to sit down and watch it as well anyway um, uh, we don't know yet how many people watched the first night of Patrick Keelty in charge of the Late Late Show but it is expected 
that those figures will be released around lunchtime today. I don't know if we'll get them before I go off air or not on uh, one o'clock. It's expected that Friday night's numbers will be a lot higher than what would have been for Ryan Tuberty's opening night last year. And everyone's saying that's going to be the curiosity factor. People who traditionally probably never watched the Late Late or maybe haven't watched the Late Late show for years. There was a little bit of curiosity as to how Patrick Healty is going to do. So they, they are expecting that the numbers will be substantially higher than what they would have been for the first show of the season last year. And will he hold on to those figures? That that would be the big uh, question. Now, reading in the Irish Daily Mail today, a spokesperson for RTE wouldn't be drawn on any guesstimated figures for last Friday. They say the audience figures are collated by Nielsen. And Nielsen, of course, is independent outside body and they'll be providing those figures around lunchtime uh, today so they they wouldn't engage in any estimates uh, until the figures, until they have the official data. So we'll wait to see what the numbers were. But I'm interested in how do you feel Patrick Keelty got on with the Late Late Show on uh, Friday, Friday night. Now, I mean, he opened up the show and I loved the way he started the show by doing that series of gags at RTE's expense. And I think he was right to do it because all of the gags, all of the things that he mentioned in that monologue, people were thinking about at home. He might as well get it out there, get, you know, get it over and done with and then be done with it so that he won't have to be referring back to it in future uh, shows. I do think the audience at the Late Late Show were perhaps a little bit uncomfortable with some of the gags because the laughter wasn't coming very hot and heavy. And even at one stage, one of the gags, Patrick Keelty was, was saying, I'll call a taxi. He was, <laughs> he must have felt this is going down like a lead balloon. To me, I felt maybe there was a bit of nervousness on behalf of some of the audience who were sitting there saying, we are here as guests of RTE. And maybe they just felt a little bit uncomfortable about it. I certainly laughed at some of the gags and I did think he was dead right, as I say, to get out there and start uh, with uh, the gags. You know, I mean, he spoke about, uh, you know, in a very light-hearted way about the misreported payments belonging to Ryan Tuberty. He joked about how the Late Late Show had been in the news headlines in the last four months that it was off air and it was more in the news than it ever was. And, you know, spoke about at least now you're going to have a presenter who asks the questions rather than somebody going before an Oireachtas committee to answer questions. And the one, the laugh out loud moment for me was when he introduced the show's band and he called them Grant Thornton and the Flip Flops. That was one I certainly um, I thought was funny. And I went on Twitter straight away to see what people were saying on social media. It's always a kind of a good, um, now sometimes it can be so negative on social media. It isn't really a good testing ground to see just how people feel about it. But I went on to social media and I did see one person on uh, Twitter or X, uh, whatever it is called now, uh, and they actually tagged um, Kevin Backhurst in a tweet saying that Kevin Backhurst would be happy with some of Patrick Keelty's jokes about RTE. But in fairness to Kevin Backhurst, he replied immediately to the unit, you, you, to the person who made the tweet and he said, actually, I thought they were great. And the boss, um, Pat, uh, Kevin uh, Backhurst, also later retweeted a clip of the closing of Patrick Keelty's monologue. And I did like the closing piece of the monologue where he you know, referenced his family and his family around the world 
world and his two little boys uh, over in England and you could see that he got quite emotional uh, indeed. So your thoughts welcomed. He mightn't have been everybody's uh, cup of tea but I'm interested in, in your thoughts. Do you think he's the right fit for the Late Late Show? Did you enjoy how the first one went? Or as I've heard some people say it's just going to take him time to settle in. I liked the mix of the guests that were on Mary McAleese I thought was absolutely uh, superb and uh, young James McLean the soccer player I haven't I think before ever seen him give such an honest forthright interview and I literally was hanging on his every word I, I thought he was exceptional 0818 103 103 we welcome your thoughts uh, this morning proving that you can please all of the people all of the time and listener says by text the Late Late Show was a load of rubbish Patrick Kilty, as far as I can see is overpaid and he seemed to me to be very very cheeky well he is a comedian and, and I don't know if he was if you describe him as a, a cheeky chappy and as from being overpaid well yeah he's, he earns a fair amount uh, for sure but but remember, he's paid less than what the former presenter was paid. Uh, Annette in Mallow was watching. Good morning to you, Annette. Good morning, Trisha. How are you? I'm very well. Did you enjoy? I did. Yeah. I did enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I thought the monologue at the beginning probably went on a little bit too far now for my liking. Okay. I thought maybe it was a case of, look, let's pass one or two jokes and, and, and rapidly move on. So I felt it went on a bit too much. I even turned to Cormac, my son, and I was like, that's kind of going on a bit long now. It, it, I wasn't laughing anymore, you know. Okay, I but think look, he just, it, it, to me, he, he just wanted to get it all out there and get it over and yeah. done with. And now he's drawn a line under it. I, I, well, I hope so now. I hope he has drawn a line under it and that it's not like an ongoing thing yeah. that he's going to keep making a joke every week. Um, it's a case of, look, we Irish, are, we're fairly easygoing, you know. We've been annoyed about what happened but don't keep bringing it back up because that's not going to be entertaining. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I don't think so, he will. I really, as a comedian, I, do, I don't think he I will. Think he I, knows, think, I think, yeah. I think he knows where to draw the line, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I, I like the guests. I mean, I'm not a Tommy Tiernan fan, but, you know, yeah. small doses, he's grand. I loved Mary McAleese and I loved James McLean. Yeah. And I mean, I thought they did wonderful interviews. Um, I loved the fact that they touched on Patrick Keelty's uh, childhood. And what happened to him? I think it's no harm that people know. Yeah, you know the the sort of background that he has. Yeah, um, and you know that he he basically that he knows what he's talking about when it comes to that subject. Do you know what I mean? And he can feel empathy um, with people in that type of scenario. You know. So now, I thought that was very good. Yeah. yeah, and you are actually you've managed to secure tickets. I did. Yes. Now tell me, firstly, I I heard criticism from oh. RTE about when they announced that there was tickets being released for the Late Late Show mm-hmm. and you nearly had to write uh, uh, your life story. It was a big long questionnaire. <laughs> it is, but that hasn't changed because I was lucky enough to get tickets about four years ago as well. Yeah. And to be honest with you, the questionnaire was the exact same. Oh, OK. They, okay. They, it hasn't changed. Not that I can remember anyway. OK. I mean, they ask you pretty much the same questions, you know. Like um, what? So they ask you, who would you like to see? Who would be your, your wish list, you know, guests? Um, okay. So you put down, you, you know, your couple of names. So for me, I put down Brendan O'Carroll. I love Brendan. been following him since way back when he first started as, out as a comedian. Funnily enough, I put down Mary McAleese. So it was lovely to see her last Friday night. I put down Gareth O'Callaghan. Love Gareth. Yeah. And then the other Gareth in my life would be Gareth Brooks. Okay. So I put all of them down. Right. <laughs> um... So then they asked you, um, have you any story, you know, funny, 
that you would be willing to tell, and I couldn't think of any. Um, <laughs> they ask you, have you anything that you're celebrating? So, do you know, if it's your birthday or if you're with a party, or anniversary, all that sort of stuff. They're asking if there was a topic that you're interested in, if there was an audience discussion, would you be willing to speak? Would you be happy to take part? Um, would you be happy to take part in any um, competition they have in the audience? You know, sometimes they get the audience members up to do a competition. And, and you, you know. knowing you, said yes to all the above. Not at all, <laughs> Trish. I'm too shy. I wouldn't oh. be able to that thing. No, no, no. I said no to all of those. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then so, you, so you have tickets. You have the date? I have. I It is the 29th, so it's Friday week. Okay. I have four tickets. Yeah. So happy out. Cannot wait. So, because it's in Dublin, obviously, and let's say, so who could afford to stay in Dublin these days? Yeah. So, I very cutely invited my friend Bonnie, who lives in Dublin, so I'm staying with her. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, and then uh, you have to be there at a certain time, is it? And you do. No, I didn't look that far yet, but I'm trying to remember back when we did this before. You have to be there by, is it seven or eight, I think? And if it's like the last time, you queue up for a very short space of time before you're brought into the waiting room. Um, where you can have a glass of wine. I believe there was oh, wine there. Okay. I was driving the last time, so I didn't have anything. Um, and you can take pictures with, you know, there's a couple of um, RTE, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Paraphernalia. So in other words, like there's a podium that they would have used for people who did, um, you know, speeches and stuff like that. Yeah. In, so that's there. So you can, you know, take pictures to prove that you're in the RTE studios and blah, blah, blah. And then you're brought into the studio and... Um, the last time, actually, when I was there, obviously, Ryan Tuberty was still presenting and Brendan O'Carroll was on, which I was delighted okay. with. And then my daughter, Alicia, was with me that time and she was mad to get a selfie with Ryan Tuberty, but she was she was a bit, you know, she was a bit shy about going up and asking him. So she took off down the steps during one of the break and I said to her, just go up and ask him, you know, he'd be fine. And so she got as far as the end of the stage and next thing she turned left to the head for the toilet. She was too embarrassed to ask him, so I was like, hang on a minute now, we solve this. So with the next break that came, I grabbed her by the arm and said, come on, off we go, straight down, and I up onto the podium where the desk was, and I said, Ryan, any chance of a selfie? And she just went, yeah, no bother. So we do, we have a picture of her, myself and Ryan and, and Alicia, and then she turned around to me and she goes, Mom, that's okay now, you can go away. In other words, I want a picture with just myself and Ryan. And he always <laughs> quite, I mean, anyone who's ever and uh, met him always says he comes across as a nice guy. guy. Do, you feel, do, you, uh, do you feel sorry for him? I, I do. I think he's been kind of thrown under the bus now a bit. Now, he's not innocent. Don't get me wrong. I mean, he was stupid to do what he did. Mm. But, you know, I mean, look, is there is there many of us out there that would say no to cash like I that? Know, if it's I know, I know. just been handed, I you know. know what I mean? And from my point of view, he, he was a lovely guy. Before you go live, um, when he was presenting it, he used to come out for about 10 minutes beforehand. And he was absolutely side-splitting hilarious. He was really, really funny. He toned himself down an awful lot when the cameras started rolling. Okay. You know? Okay. So and, he was and, hilarious. And yeah, I would imagine Patrick he'll Well, as a stand-up comedian, uh, he'll be the same. All right, listen, and thanks, thanks for that. And enjoy in two weeks' time. Enjoy oh, your trip to the big smoke. I thanks for joining us. Uh, bye-bye. Next week, many parents will find themselves under pressure with the planned three-day strike action by childcare providers who feel they have no other option as many are being driven out of the sector by mounting costs to discuss what the situation is like locally. I'm joined by Mela Finn and uh, Mela is uh, founder and owner of Mulberry Montessori in Mitchellstown. Uh, good morning to you, Mela. Good morning, Trish. 
Good morning, Patricia. And you, uh, you're very welcome uh, to the programme. Am I right in saying that strike action is the last thing that providers like your good self want to do? Of course it is. Of course. At the end of the day, like the children are a priority and that's, I suppose we're a caring sector, you know, a caring profession and the children have always been our priority. When I started out 19 years ago now in my own service and I'm working well over that, you know, in other services, but 19 years ago when I started out working in my, or starting off with my own service, you know, one my big reason for doing it was because I love children. I love working with children. I love helping them to learn. I love caring for them, you know. And I mean, we like to support the families as well, which is a huge part of what we do. It's not just all about the children. It's about their families as well and supporting them. And the last thing we want to be doing is inconveniencing our parents and our children, you know, because we have a lot of children with additional needs in our services as well. And I mean, you know, closures like this can affect them, you know, quite seriously. So, I mean, we really, you know, I mean, I, the last thing I want to be doing. Is I know, I, I know. Now, from a financial uh, point of view, is it fair to say that the core funding model simply is not working? No, it's just not working. It's not. Um, so basically what has happened with the core funding. So prior to core funding, we were getting a higher capitation rate for anybody that had a degree you know, that, that um, were qualified to degree level, right? Yeah. So we were getting that higher capitation. Um, and uh, so on top of that, then, so we were getting the link payment and there was a payment support payment as well, which was kind of basically for extra hours outside of, you know, the the, the one-to-one or to the care of the children, say, right? You know, when we were working with the children. So what has happened then is the core funding has basically taken... That's back. So we're back down now to 69 euro per child per week. Um, so we're getting this. And then on top of that, then the core funding is coming in. But what really happened was that that extra capitation funding was taken away from us and put into a big pot. And basically has been split now. Oh, this is ECCE-based services. So now this is being split over all services. So you're talking uh, full day care services, part-time services. So this has been split over all of those services. So while, yes, he's saying there's extra funding going in, there is extra funding going in, but it's all been put into the one pot and split over all services. So now, basically, we're back down at the bottom. And because we're an ECC sessional service only, we are not eligible to or entitled to claim any extra fees outside of the three hours that we can and and you can't go to the parents and say, look, this is the position we're in. We want to keep going. Would you be willing to contribute? No, no, because if we are, we're found to be non-compliant. So basically, wow. we're, we're basically funded by what the government give us. Um, and that's it, as an ECC. And all of your costs, Mela, I mean, we're all talking about the rising cost of living. Everybody dreads electricity bill uh, coming in. You'd have insurance costs. Yep. You've got staff costs. Everything is going up. Yes, yes. And I mean, on top of that then as well is there's what's called an employment regulation order which has come in. Now, my staff are amazing and I'm very, very lucky. I have some of my staff with me almost since I started. But at the end of the day, those staff deserve to be paid regardless of whether it's for experience of 20 years almost or whether it's for a degree, which they have received and plus a bit of experience, you know. Mm. Um, but we don't, you know, I can't pay my staff the fees because we're capped at what's coming into us. So while I'd love to be paying my staff way more than what I can, I just can't because the money isn't there. Because the uh, government has us capped. 
Is staff shortages also, I don't know if it's an issue for you, but I've heard that from other providers. That is an ongoing issue. Yeah, it is. Now, I'm okay this year. I was very lucky this year. Um, I was able to find, and as I said, all this is the best interview I'll ever do is having students in a work experience with me. So I have a girl with me this year and last year, but previous years I've struggled to find people. Um, It's been quite, you know, quite a struggle to find people that are, you know, suitable to work with children at the end of the day, you know. Um, And I mean, I know some of my friends are really struggling, you know, and my colleagues that have services as well, and they just can't find people. I know I spoke to one of one of the ladies last night, and she's looking for an AIM support, which is, you know, to support the, the children with additional needs in the classroom. And she can't find anyone. She's really struggling. So therefore, that child may be at risk of losing their place within the service because she can't find them because they're leaving the sector. They're going working in other areas because they're paid better. And is, is, is that the reason that it's, it's, it's not that they don't want to do the job because anyone who you ever speak with, and, and I think you summed it up yourself in the way you spoke about loving children and loving every day going to work and working with children. So we know that people love these jobs, yes. but it's just simply that the pay is so bad. It is. And I mean, love isn't enough, as I, you know, I've said to my parents in my, my letter I've sent out to them about this protest. Love isn't enough. You can only do it for so long. But at the end of the day, you have to be, you know, your mental health has to be right because, you know, the stress that we're under and also then the financial side of it, you know. And I mean, at the end of the day, these girls cannot, and ladies cannot pay for a mortgage. They can't get a mortgage, not to mind pay for a mortgage because the minute that they come in and say they're working in an early year service they're, and they're only earning you know, for 38 weeks of the year or 40 weeks of the year, whatever it may be, you know, they can't get a mortgage. Yeah, somebody by text saying more funding is desperately needed, especially in rural settings to cover staff wages and the day-to-day running of our preschool. As the owner of a rural setting, I've been unable to pay myself a wage for the last six months. This can't continue. Minister O'Gorman needs to listen. I'm a rural country setting providing for 50 children and their families on a weekly basis. Children are at the core of our setting. And uh, Mila, that's not the first time I've heard of of providers not taking a wage themselves. I mean, that can't continue. No, I can't. And as I said to you, love isn't enough. You know, the love of what you do isn't enough. And I think that's what's happened to us. We've been a caring sector for so long, caring profession for so long, that the government are taking advantage of that. They're thinking these people are willing to work with these children for nothing. But costs are rising, as you've said there already. So, I mean, what are we going to do? You know, keep taking nothing and have our houses, you know, get into get into trouble for paying our houses, not be able to pay our bills. It's not, it can't, it can't keep going that way. Okay, here's somebody, there's no name on this, but it's somebody who attends your service saying, I'm a single parent. My daughter attends Mulberry, Mulberry Montessori. I'm reliant on the three-hour ecky hours to be able to go to work. And if the service was to, was to close, I would end up having to stay at home. It enables my daughter to interact with other children. And I appreciate all that Mel and the girls do for the children and the hard work and commitment they put in. I just can't understand why they're not entitled to the same wages as teachers. I prefer sending my child to ecky session uh, and rather than a childminder, rather than full day care. Uh, and that's my choice. If the Eki service is closed, that choice will be taken away from uh, me. Uh, thank you for that. There's no name on that. But Mela, the, the, we have seen more and more childcare providers closing up shop. I think it was four, I think 42 so far this year up to June. And there was 141 closed last year. We're in danger of losing childcare providers. 
totally because, and I've spoken to people, I have spoken to people and it's actually breaking my heart to speak to them because I know how they feel. I know the love that they have for what they do because you don't go into this sector unless you love working with children. You know, a lot of people say to me, God, I don't know how you do it, you know, and it is, you know, it's something you have to have a love of it. And these people are giving up something that they love doing because they just can't do it anymore because financially and stress because of all the extra paperwork that we're getting and, you know, all the boxes we have to take and everything, you know. And 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 fair dues, I I saw, I have a copy of the letter that you sent out to all the parents explaining what is going on. It's a very, very well uh, put together letter because it says it exactly as it is. And I'm assuming you've a lot of support from the parents, Mella. Yeah, well, you know, I suppose my existing parents, yes, and parents that have gone through us prior um, I suppose some of our newer parents aren't aware yet of how important we are and what we do because they haven't got, they're only a month in, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they're only learning about what we do now, you know. But I mean, the parents that I've had with me over the last few years or that have had children with me, they really get it, you know, and they're so full of support for us, you know, that we need to do this. Um, because they they know, they know what work we do. They know how much we do for their children and for them as well. Because as I said to you already, we support their, fa- you know, families of the children that we have with us as well, you know. Um, and I think that's the thing, you know, it's, as I said in the letter, it's the uniqueness that's going as well. Because our, con- like the control has been taken over by the government of our businesses. And every single little ECC service you will go to. You know, they're all, and, and part-time services, and a lot of the, you know, the daycare as well. Uh, they, they all have their own uniqueness. Mm. But we're all being kind of rounded up into the one, you know, what the government wants us to be. And I mean, that's, at the end of the day, that's not what parents want. They don't well, want an institution. Yeah. You know, they want a home from home or, you know, they and, want children. And I've, I've done so many interviews uh, in the last number of years on this particular subject, Mela. Do you feel that the government are just not listening? Yeah. At the end of the day, yes. Yes, I mean, I mean I've mean, i spoken to, you know, as, as you know, I'm a, meder, a member of the Federation of Early Childhood Providers. And, I mean, you know, I've spoken to people, you know, that are involved in, you know, dis- discussions with the minister and his department. And, I mean, they're basically being almost ridiculed. And, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we're the people working on the ground. We are the people that can see it as it is. Not, the, you know, the academics that are up there telling people this should be done and that should be done. We're the people on the ground and they're just not listening. And it's very frustrating to feel so disrespected. Another preschool owner says, I own a rural preschool. I've not been able to take a wage in months. Plus, I recently had to take a loan from my husband in order to pay my staff's wages. I'm behind on bills due to lack of funding. I started off my private business and now I feel I'm working for the government on a very poor wage. I've lost control of my small uh, business. That's really sad uh, to see that in, in print. And, and Mela, have you considered leaving the industry? I have. I actually ah. went back and did my level eight degree last year. Um, with unfortunately not to benefit my service completely, but with this little thing in the back of my mind going, okay, what can I do if I have to close my service in the morning? What else? What other area can I go into if I have to close my service in the morning? And that's sad. That's breaking my heart. And the big thing for me, and I said this at a meeting we were at a couple of weeks ago. Um, <clears throat> my daughter's sixteen. And I would not recommend to my daughter. She wants to go into this area. She's in TY now at the moment. And she was saying, you know, I love it. And I was saying to her, but, you know, maybe primary teaching might be an option for you. And she's like, but this is what I want to do. And I'm like, look, I wouldn't recommend you going into it. It's the disrespect and the pay, everything. You know, it's just the only thing 
loaf of children. And as I said, that's just not enough. Ah, I hate saying that because my dream when I started my business would have been, you know, God, if one of my children said they wanted to take it over, that would be fantastic. I can hear the passion in your voice, but I can also hear how how deflated you are, uh, Mella, with all of this going on. So there's three day strike action for next week. Are you encouraging people to come out and support you? Totally. Yeah, totally. I mean, I have my parents online. I just, you know, I got them getting in touch with all my friends, my family, peer, previous parents, you know, um, we put it up on our Facebook page now and try and encourage them to come and support us as well. Um, we know obviously we can't expect everybody to travel to Dublin but even just emailing the minister you know to email the minister and tell them how much you know our service has meant to them down through the years you know if they have had children that have attended us our service or any other service you know any service that I know parents appreciate us you know yeah. um, you know, need to flood flood the inboxes of, yeah. of the, of, uh, the minister and we're talking yeah. about Minister O'Gorman isn't it it's, it's his yeah. Minister O'Gorman yeah. but any ministers really yeah. be it more our own our own TDs in our local areas yeah. as well you know our councillors um, even you know the Taoiseach Taunashta anybody that's in that government that can help us we need we need respect we need to be respected for what we do Listen, we will be thinking of you next week, uh, Mela. Stay in contact uh, with us. And it would just be devastating to see a service like yours uh, have to go. Listen, I appreciate you taking time out to talk to us today. And thank you, Patricia. Thanks so much. Good morning to you. Bye bye. Bye bye. That is the lovely uh, Mela uh, Finn of Mulberry Montessori in Mitchellstown that she set up some along with her husband some 19 uh, years ago and she set it up as she says herself with the intention of providing you know unique home from home Montessori preschool experience for children in the area she's been doing it for 19 years but it's getting to the stage where financially she can't afford to keep the place open because of the funding coming from the government. Ireland South MEP Billy Kelleher has hit out at the government for continuing to dismiss nuclear energy and he says that the current laws which ban nuclear powered uh, electricity generation plants in this country needs to be looked at again. MEP Billy Kelleher joins me this morning. Good morning to you Billy. Good morning, Patricia. Why do you think the very mention of nuclear power puts the fear of God in so many people, including politicians? Well, I think they look at it through a very emotional prism, being honest, Patricia. I think they look at it in the context of the Cold War, uh, the threats of nuclear war. And then obviously we had the very emotional aspect in the attachment to Ireland of Chernobyl and the, the, the problems that it caused with people there when, it, uh, when, when there was a meltdown and children coming to Ireland. So I think there's a lot of reasons. And of course, we also had this discussion way back in the 70s in Karen Sore Point in Wexford, where there was a, a, t- a mention that they were considering nuclear. But I just think that we should have a a debate among ourselves as a people um, about how we're going to fuel our economy into the future. You know, we want to wean ourselves off gas. We're trying to wean ourselves off oil and uh, coal is gone. Uh, we're going to be very dependent on wind energy, but we will need alternative energy sources from time to time to ensure that we have at least base load capacity when the wind isn't blowing. So in, in that discussion, I think we shouldn't have anything off the table. And bear in mind, Patricia, 13 to 14 countries in the European Union alone uh, use nuclear power. Uh, people who go to Spain, for example, may not be aware, but uh, Spain is a nuclear power uh, uh, country. So is France, uh, so is Sweden, so is Finland. Uh, Germany is unwinding. But that was a decision made about 20 years ago in the context of a political debate rather than a debate based on science, economics and physics. Yeah, and the fact that it was banned back in 1999. I mean, 
I'm assuming advancements have been made and that it is a safer option than, say, it even was back in 1999. Yes, well, look, I mean, the, the, the technology is evolving the whole time. Um, the, the nuclear reactor plants are getting smaller in terms of the design. They're no longer these huge, massive uh, plants that, you know, we are used to in terms of our own mind concept of um, Sellafield or uh, Dungeness in, in Kent in South England. So, I mean, they, these are massive buildings that were uh, built years ago, but the technology is moving and they're more modular forms of nuclear um, uh, generation type modules now. But there's a way to go. But I'm just saying we should have that discussion, Patricia, the idea that we would have a statute um, in in the, the parliament, an actual law that forbids us, you know, discussing, debating, um, you know, actually having this uh, broad discussion among ourselves, bearing in mind other countries are now developing nuclear capacity as well. Uh, Finland is at it. Uh, Poland is at it. Uh, Slovakia. Slovakia is a, a country roughly the same size of Ireland in terms of population base. They already have three nuclear power stations and they're building other ones. There's never been an accident in Europe. There's been three incidents worldwide. Uh, Long Mile Island or Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania, Fukushima in, in Japan and then obviously Chernobyl in, in Ukraine. But, you know, um, where you have uh, proper measures in place where you have, uh, you know, functioning governments where you have everything right. Uh, you know, this is a very clean, safe source of energy. And all I'm saying is why the Irish government uh, would pass legislation that forbids us from considering this into the future when we want to make sure that we've clean green energy. And bear in mind, Patricia, like half the, the, of the carbon free electricity generated in the European Union, half of that comes from nuclear power. We are going to push a cable from uh, Brest in Brittany in northwestern France to Ireland in the next number of years. We're going to be purchasing energy from France. It's going to be nuclear generated. We're already purchasing uh, energy from uh, the UK. It is nuclear generated. So when you're boiling your eggs or boiling your kettle, there's a good chance in the years ahead that at certain times you will be purchasing energy from a country that generates it by nuclear power. And, you know, when you go on your holidays, uh, you could be very near a nuclear power station and you wouldn't even know it. So I just think we have to have that mature debate. Okay, a number of listeners are asking, would nuclear power mean cheaper electricity for households? Obviously, the price of electricity is on everybody's mind at the moment. Well, I mean, that's why I, I said we have to have this debate. I mean, if we want clean, green uh, energy and if we want it at an affordable price, well, then it's just something that should be considered. As we wean ourselves off fossil fuels, we, we are going to need another energy source that, you know, complements wind energy and solar energy. They, they may be weeks at a time when the wind doesn't blow. You will have to have some other capabilities to generate baseload capacity. Uh, only tw- July 12 months ago, Patricia, Ireland was within a very uh, s- short space of time of collapsing the, the, the power supply because it didn't have enough capacity. It almost came to the point where it had not enough capacity. That was because the, we had very calm weather, the turbines weren't turning and we didn't have enough capacity to base load uh, from other sources. So as we expand our economy, as the population grows, as we electrify our transport modes, as we electrify our heat to pump um, or our, our air to pump heat uh, systems that are huge in terms of, uh, you know, use of, of energy, we need to have definitive definite supplies of energy and that will be primarily from wind but when the wind isn't blowing from others We need something else Yeah, yeah. And, and, and actually it's interesting I heard, I heard you say a few minutes ago you know we know we're trying to wean ourselves off uh, gas and then last Friday we had on board Planola rejecting the application for the construction of the Shannon side liquefied natural gas terminal in uh, North Kerry and I heard you comment at the time you thought that was extremely short-sighted and a major blow to our future energy security? 
Well, yes. I mean, when I say wean ourselves off, I mean, at the moment we are, you know, more dependent on gas than we should be. But we want to go to a point where we can use wind energy, solar energy, where we can store as much as we can in terms of battery storage, uh, converting to hydrogen. But, you know, that is a, a, a long way off. Uh, so in the meantime, we have to be able to use some other form of energy source other than wind. And it's gas at the moment. Um we only have gas coming from Corrib and from the North Sea through the Moffat pipeline from Scotland to Ireland. Uh, we are now completely dependent on the UK for our, our gas supplies. And I think that's reckless in my own view. Uh, I just believe that there was an opportunity here to uh, consider uh, the, the plant in uh, Ballylongford, North Kerry. It was going to be an LNG plant, which would allow us to import uh, liquefied natural gas. It also was going to con uh, construct a 600 um, megawatt uh, electricity generating station, and it was going to have battery storage as well. And ultimately, this particular plant you know, could have been future-proof to ensure that it would be compatible with hydrogen in the years ahead. So all in all, it was a def definitely a very much a missed opportunity from the point of view of enhancing our energy security, our diversity of supply and our energy sources. Okay, a listener says the Celtic interconnector was floated as an idea late 2016, early 2017. We may get it online by 2024, 2025. If we were to go down the route of building a reactor, does Billy have any idea on the timeline it would take to build a nuclear reactor? Well, well, judging on how quickly we build anything in, our, in this country, it would a be long a long time. way off. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I mean, we are pitiful when it comes to large infrastructure projects in this country. It's something I actually raised with Minister McGrath last week in our thinking in, in view of the fact that, you know, we have now um, an opportunity to transform our country over the next 15, 20 years in terms of infrastructure development, not just roads, but in terms of water quality, investment, ensuring our beaches are clean, uh, public transport modes, energy sources. Uh, we have huge opportunity, but it takes us forever and a day to um, uh, plan uh, and to eventually execute and construct something. So that, that is a big problem for us. And like you, you saw, the, even, even the Bally Longford uh, decision, why I disagreed with it, it was forever. It's been going on for years. Place. Yeah, it's been going on for, for years. For, for years, yeah. years. You look at the You look at the metro in Dublin. I mean, the metro in Dublin now at this stage, you know, we've been talking about metros in Dublin for 25 to 30 years at this stage. Uh, nothing has happened. So we, 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 are, we are problematic in that, where we have, you know, and we have great capacity as a people. And I just think that at times we deny ourselves our, ultimate opportunity to, to invest in ourselves and our people and our future by our prevarication around making decisions on, on major infrastructural projects. Yeah. But getting back to the, the original question, yes, it would take years. And that interconnector from uh, Ireland to France, I mean, that's only 700 megawatts. That is roughly one tenth of the energy we need in any one day. And as the economy expands and grows and the population grows and we, we electrify our transport systems and our heating systems and our houses, well, we're going to need more electricity. So we'll need more interconnector capacity uh, and you know we'd have to start planning ahead for that as well so okay. we have a lot of work to do but we have huge opportunities and we have the capacity we just need uh, ourselves to believe that we can and invest in um, you know people skills in particularly in the public administration the civil service to, to know that they have the capacity to take on these big projects and deliver them a uh, case in point is a children's hospital for example a wonderful project but it, you know it, it has gone way over budget over its original estimates and I just believe that we have to look at how we um, execute these plans in the future And again there's, there's children who will have had children themselves by the time the hospital opens uh, Just one final question Billy in wants to know uh, what does uh, Billy Kelleher think of Eamon Ryan Using the license for the Barry Row oil field off the Cork coast. 
Well, look, I mean, we've made a decision that we're not going to start explore, exploring and, and extracting more oil from the, the, the seas around Ireland. That's the decision we've made because we do not want to start burning more fossil fuels. I mean, we want to reduce our carbon emissions. And the way you reduce carbon emissions is by not burning fossil fuels. So um, uh, coal is a dirty fossil fuel. So 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 is oil. And, and gas is 50 percent cleaner than oil. So in the meantime, gas is, is what we should be using until we get to a place where we can use hydrogen. So, look, I'm not in favour of further extraction of oil from uh, the seabed. Certainly exploration is a different thing. You know, exploring is something that you can always do. Uh, but in terms of extracting for the purpose of fossil fuel, uh, burning uh, certainly wouldn't be something I would be supportive of. OK. All right. We leave it there, Billy Alderson. Thank you for that. And thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you, Patricia. Good morning to you. OK, some of your commentary coming into us uh, throughout the first hour on a completely different and a random topic. Someone says, morning, Patricia. How can the government justify sending three of our the party leaders, the coalition leaders, uh, how can they justify sp- sending all of them to the US this week? This listener is wondering, Eamon Ryan is leader of the Green Party, but also uh, in the in the coalition. Did he cycle there? No, I, I take it that they all went by plane. I don't know. Did they all travel together? Do they all go on one commercial flight? I have no details of how they got to the US, but of course they're all in the US. Um, it is the the government leaders are in New York. It's for the um, United Nations General Assembly. Now I can tell you that the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, is a keynote speaker at a special event to relaunch the Sustainable Development Goals, which are a set of high-level initiatives to protect the environment and to improve the lives of people all over the world. So that's the, the key's the keynote speaker there. And then I did a quick check to see what Michal Martin was doing as Tawnish, the Minister for Foreign Affairs, he uh, spoke at a special meeting on food system security and he said that Ireland will provide at least €284 million this year in support for food, agriculture and nutrition programmes around the world. That's what he was addressing. And then I was trying to work out what is the Eamon Ryan doing there. He's, of course, our Minister for the Environment. He is, as the system points out, also the leader of the Green Party. He's taking part in a number of climate action events at the General Assembly and that's in preparation for the next COP meeting on combating climate change. And I can, while the listener is annoyed that the three coalition leaders have all gone, it isn't just the three because also uh, joining them is the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly. He's also over there. He's taking part in UN events on pandemic preparedness and universal healthcare and he's doing that later in the week and I know when they finish up in New York the Taoiseach will fly to Florida he's opening up a new Irish consulate uh, centre in Miami before returning to New York to make Ireland's national address to the General Assembly of the United Nations on Friday. So they're over there for the United Nations. Do we need to send four? And I'm assuming that the four don't travel on their own. They will have advisors and PAs with them as well. I don't know what the the total of it is, how much it's costing uh, the country. Could we have done with just sending one? I don't know how the United Nations works. Do they expect each country uh, to send all of the various leaders? I'm not too sure, but is there a cost? Yeah, there certainly is a cost involved. 0818103103. I started the programme by asking your thoughts on the late late uh, show. No name on this, but somebody says, I was a bit disgusted at Mary McAleese's comments about her sideline antic, antics towards referees, her own 
daughter who coaches teams has banned Mary from the sideline. This listener said so many referees are being abused at games and because of it games have had to be cancelled um, so didn't like to hear Mary McAleese uh, talking about the fact that she gets involved with abusing uh, refs when she's on the sideline but I do think the Late Late Show uh, should include more audience participation maybe bring back live phone calls into the show from the public remember they, they haven't I don't think they, the last two would have done that was back in Gay Burns Day remember there would be phone calls in from the public I don't know if they're going to look at that or not they certainly didn't do it on night number one then Dan said Patricia I'd actually no intention of watching the Late Late Show as I wouldn't be a big Patrick Keelty fan but curiosity factor took over and I ended up watching it and actually thought he was great. The jokes about the past and the things that have happened at RT at the start of the show and the monologue was brilliant and because of the first show I will watch again says uh, Dan. Well done Dan and Sheila says I wasn't happy with the Late Late Show. I prefer Ryan Tuberty by far. I suppose give Patrick Keelty a chance uh, Sheila and then a lot of reaction to um, to Mella Finn who joined us talking about the situation that preschools and Montessori schools find themselves in and she really is passionate about her sector and you could hear it in her voice but you could also hear how deflated she is because of this core funding that the government introduced and it was meant to be the greatest thing since sliced bread when it came to childcare and of course one of the main things with core funding is going to help parents they won't have to pay for uh, childcare but somewhere along the line they have missed out that the smaller providers are losing out to the point that many of the smaller providers they uh, as workers themselves can't take a wage they can't keep going like that it's, it simply isn't going to work Olive in Mitchestown was on uh, to say that uh, uh, Mella's Montessori, uh, Mulberry Montessori as it calls, they go above and beyond for every child that goes through their doors. They put on fantastic plays and you'll always see wonderful decorations on their windows. I'd like to publicly says Olive to say well done to Mella and Mella would say all of her staff as well. Hi Patricia I was listening to Mella from Mulberry Montessori in Mitchestown. My daughter actually attended her Montessori school 14 years ago. To this day, she still talks about it. What an amazing place, what amazing staff. It would be, it's such a shame that the sector have to keep begging for their rights. And that's from a Mitchestown listener. Someone else says this is disgraceful that it's going on in today's society. These places, creches, Childcare centres, Montessori schools are so important for our children. But it seems like nothing but a lack of respect from the government. These people deserve to be paid. I feel they should be on the same pay level as teachers as they're actually doing the same work. These preschools are uh, vital. And Teresa says, Morning, I just want to concur with everything that Mella said in the last hour. I think the government is just typically relying on the goodwill of many of these staff. It seems like childcare and healthcare staff are completely being taken advantage of in this country. My little boy is currently attending Kate's Montessori that's also in Mitchellstown. They provide an amazing service. I certainly will be supporting them on their three-day strike action next week. That's from uh, Teresa. And Louise also comes in support of Kate's Montessori in Mitchellstown. Says, I've got a child in Montessori. The girls teaching him, they are better than any teacher out there. They should be paid the same as teachers. We actually need more Montessori schools, not less. 
That is from Louise. And Deirdre says, I've actually met with the providers and I've spoken with them and they are in serious financial difficulties. Self-employed, sole traders is always challenging. But if you have to start putting in your own funds, you are going down a very slippery road. And this is what this sector has been subjected to. The big the big offshoot issue here is parents. Many parents will have to give up work in order to care for their children at home if they don't have locally based childcare facilities and the government seem to be pushing this uh, agenda. So a lot of support for childcare uh, providers and as I say people will have the opportunity to support those childcare providers because they're on uh, all out strike many of them for three days next week. Not the larger ones uh, weirdly enough because if you look at the core funding the core funding suits the larger providers. It's the smaller providers and the sole traders and somebody who opened up like Mella opened up a Montessori school herself and as we heard when I was talking with Mella we heard from a number of other people particularly smaller rural childcare facilities in Montessori schools you know saying they haven't taken a wage themselves in six months and one woman saying she's had to borrow from her husband just to pay her staff wages that can't keep going 0818 103 John Paul taking your calls you can also email the programme Cork today at c103.ie uh, Also into us by WhatsApp Morning Patricia would you please give a big thank you to the staff at the Mallow Injury Clinic I had to take my granddaughter there on Friday she injured her hand at school everyone we met there was nicer then the last one we met, she ended up with a fracture on her finger. Oh, the poor little thing is very painful. Had everything done and we were home, would you believe, in less than two hours thanking you. Yeah, anyone that has to attend any of those minor injury clinics, be it the one in Mallow or there's an excellent one also at Bantry Hospital in West Cork. Everybody talks about if you have the type of injury that they can sort out for you. They can't do everything, unfortunately, but if they have the type of injury, something like that, that can be sorted out, you're in and out in such a short space of time. Whereas, and it's not the fault of the staff of the accident emergency departments in the city, but everybody dreads having to go to an A&E department in the city because you know there's no way that you will be seen, sorted and home within two hours. And they are just so overstretched and they're overstretched because the A&E departments in the county was closed down and they funneled everybody into the city. We said it at the time. We predicted that it was going to happen and it came to pass. 0818 103 103 and Patty and Fomoy was on. He wants to have a little bit of a moan about the banks and wonders to others feel the same as him. He had need to go to his local bank branch last week. He had some money that he wanted to lodge into his account. Now he said, went into the bank I don't want to use one of those machines. He said, I wanted to go in. I wanted to speak with a physical teller, hand my money in and lodge it into my account. The queue for the teller was so long. People were literally, along with Pat, waiting ages. Now, there was a floor person who was walking around seeing if they could help people out. And Pat said, engaged in conversation with the floor person. And Pat said, I asked them, what is the difference between a supermarket and a bank? I told them that if we were in a supermarket, a bell would ring and they would open up another till to ease the queue. The answer from the bank person was, well, we are not a supermarket. Does it annoy other people that when you go in, I mean, they do. And the reason that they only have one teller open is they're trying to encourage you to use the machines. And yes, you can lodge money into the machines, 
but not everybody likes to use machines. People like to speak with a physical person. I fully understand that, uh, Pat. But that's why that person walking around, they're trying to encourage you out of the queue and into using a machine. And sure, all it does is it's, it's less and less uh, workers. But gone are the day when you would go into a bank and there would be a bank of, pardon the pun, of tellers open. That certainly doesn't happen anymore. 0818103103. John Paul, taking your calls. C103 Jobs. Ballancolic coaches, they have full and part-time positions available for bus drivers. Now, you need to have a D licence. It's for work on school transport and for private hire. Call 021-487-3828. Barry Brothers Builders Providers, they're based in Skibbereen. They've got a vacancy for a full-time person with some experience in a customer-facing role and the construction sector. 028 21610. Ashgrove Renewables in Mallow, they've got a vacancy for a technical support administrator and a business support administrator. You need to email hr at ashgrove.eu. And a 360 degree machine operator and a ground worker with experience in gullies, manholes, etc., is wanted for a civil engineering company that's based in Canturk. CVs to jobs at hamiltonfrench.com. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Now, just before I went away on holidays, a book about an Irish priest landed on my desk. The name, I have to say, was unfamiliar. Monsignor Thomas John Capel, who was born in Ardmore in County Waterford in 1836. And he led what some would describe as a very colourful life, but certainly not the life you would have expected a Catholic priest of his time to lead. The book is written by the very talented former newsreader Uno Hagen and her late husband Colm Keane. And to tell us more about the Monsignor, I'm delighted to say that Una joins me live in studio. Good morning to you, Una. Good morning, Patricia. And always a pleasure to have you in uh, studio. Now, I have to start at the beginning. How did you come across this guy? We came across him when Colm and I were researching our book on Lourdes and the Irish Connection. And he actually met St. Bernadette. But while we were doing our research, we kept coming across these kind of veiled references to uh, his complete and utter disgrace. No details given. um, His bankruptcy and um, women veiled, you know, little bits, telltale bits in relation to women. And so Colm and I looked at each other and as two journalists, we said, you know what, there's there's got to be a story here. Yeah. And there was. And the it was only when I got to the end of the book that I realised the absolute amount of work that went into this. Now, as sadly, uh, Colm is no longer uh, with us. Did you have to finish the book or how did the, how did, had you all the we, research done? We had all the research done and then we started, took about a year, year and a half to put together. Luckily for us, it was lockdown, but it was kind of like uh, putting a huge jigsaw together. 
But first you had to find the pieces yeah. before you put them together. But we enjoyed it. I mean, we'd spend hours looking at Victoria. Have you ever seen Victorian handwriting? I know. And they write, <laughs> uh, when they're writing letters, they write on the front, the back, back yeah. the edges. Yeah, yeah. Every you had to turn it upside no down and all the was wasted. But it was, I mean, that's the kind of thing I love. Yeah. So it, it was a joy to do. And newspaper archives, you were, you were lucky in the era Absolutely. that he lived in. Because there's so many similarities between now and then. Newspapers were kind of like the internet, like Google. Uh, there were hundreds of them. And of course, he was so famous. He was being covered all the time. He was very dedicated to becoming famous. He pulled himself up by his bootstraps from that very poor beginning in Ardmore in County Waterford. His mother was from nearby Whiting Bay. Her name was Mary Fitzgerald and was a pretty much a powerhouse herself. But yeah, I mean, he worked hard at becoming famous and he was very, he became famous for two things. One, he was a fantastic preacher and his second talent was being able to convert particularly members of the British upper class to um, Catholicism. And particularly women. Women absolutely <laughs> loved him. He was like, a, they were like moth to a flame. But you have to remember... He was very good looking. Yeah, good looking guy. Good looking guy. He was tall, brown hair, blue grey eyes, uh, perfect teeth, wonderful smile, very charismatic. Um, But underneath that, there's always this dichotomy with Capel. He was ruthless. He was manipulative um, and pretty heartless and cruel at times. Mm. Uh, if, If he had stayed on the right track... He could have gone very far. I mean, oh yes, yeah, they were talking about him highly, being a bishop. Yeah, yeah he was highly yeah. respected by the Vatican, wasn't it? Absolutely, he was respected by his by by the bishops in England. He was made the head of the first Catholic university in um, in Britain. Made a complete disaster of it. Ran it into the ground. Its reputation was trashed. It was in you know huge debt. But the not one pope, but two, maybe even three. No, I think it was two. Um, he knew them, and they were very. Very fond of him, uh, and they they he was on the the fast track to promotion, but uh, l- luckily for us and unluckily for him, he managed to derail himself in yeah. spectacular fashion. Absolutely, absolutely. And then uh, you touched on his sermons. He, uh, what was very uh, unusual as well, and it showed what a gift he had. Mm-hmm. He could do it without a script. Yes, what he would do was he would think about what the topic was write down notes and put a structure on it and then he would burn that piece of paper. But he was very, he was a great communicator. He didn't go in for great philosophy or moral lectures or anything like that. He he spoke in what one journalist called word pictures. So it made it very easy. It is a fantastic gift. And he was also very careful about his language. Um, so that he would adjust his language to the kind of the class and the education of his audience. He made a mistake once. He was in Fulham and he thought he had a very posh crowd and then realised they weren't and completely changed what he was going to say. So he was a fantastic So he was able to read the room? Oh, totally. He was yeah. like, I don't know, the, one of those, if he was a celebrity nowadays, it, he would love it because he would be on TikTok and <laughs> Instagram and he'd be an, he would be the number one influencer, believe and, me. And are there records of any of his sermons? Oh, there are. There yeah. are. Yeah, but they are. 
I don't know, the, like his sermons on women and he, he was exiled to the United States. He started um, preaching about the rights of women, which would kind of turn your stomach in a way. Yeah. Because really, they should stay at home. Their husband was in charge. They, that was the they should be holy. Yeah. They, yeah. And yet he was pursuing particularly widows. He had a poncho for widows. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. He was very clever because widows were some of the, unlike lots of other women, they were in charge of their own money Mm. so he could get their money. And he did. And he did. Oh, boy, did he. And to people who, who couldn't afford it. Yeah. You know, he really ripped off and betrayed the trust of good, good people. His love of drink and the <laughs> finer things in life. Oh, it was that, extraordinary. That ultimately led to his downfall, didn't it? It did. I mean, he ended up going bankrupt for the equivalent of three million pounds in today's money. He had a fantastic house, a villa, Cedar Villa in London, in Kensington, if you can imagine it. And he had these wonderful Sunday afternoon parties out on the lawn. Uh, you know, and to get an invite was a really big deal. But in terms of the drink, um, when he eventually went bankrupt, they had to um, auction off all his goods and chattels. And one of the items was uh, his his wine collection, which was 30 dozen bottles of wine. That's 360 bottles. <laughs> I had to do the calculation twice. Goodness me. So it was extraordinary. Yeah, he was seen in London at, you know, one fifteen in the morning in some place of ill repute, drinking porter and eating oysters. Uh, and he had a, oh, he had a penchant for buying property as well. So that's quite Irish. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and particularly, as you say, from the poverty he came from. Absolutely. Yeah. You have to admire it. I mean, it was, he was seen from a very early age that he was an extraordinary young man. And yet he squandered that. Yeah. You know, and he became, he really did become a predator on women. Yeah. And then, like, he was borrowing money from, mm-hmm. from, from anyone who would, who would give him money. But he was able to win people's trust that they willingly gave him the money. Yeah. There was one lovely woman. Her name was Miss Plews. I mean, all she wanted to do was to be a good person. Um, And she had a little money and he managed to get her to sign her name to a lease. And he said, don't worry about it. You'll never have to pay any money. Of course, she did. She had to pay all, lost all her money, had to borrow money. And uh, she was described as being enthralled to him. But how he could do that to somebody who was so good. There was another woman who was a servant. Now, she ended up with quite a lot of money. It was about £1,600. It was all she had to live on for the rest of her life. He persuaded her to give her, give him her all that money. 
and said he'd get a great rate of return. She never saw it again. Yeah, and she ended up with nothing. Nothing. And he would have known that. He would. He had no conscience. Yeah. And he had no conscience. There's a, a woman called, a young woman, Mary Sturton was her name. Her mother was from Tipperary, actually. She, um, Mary came from a very wealthy family. She had a brief ill-advised affair with a married man, ended up total isolation in Kensington, where Capel was based. And uh, he, she met him and she said that's where all her misery began. And he would call to her lodgings um, constantly, stay there an hour, an hour and a half. And this is where, according to Mary, these acts of criminality that Cardinal Manning spoke about, his his boss, uh, occurred. And she she was brave enough to complain about him. But like when he was accused uh, of these, you know, being a, a preying on women and having these affairs, you, have to, you kind of have to keep, when you're reading it, you have to yeah. remind yourself, this was a Catholic priest. Yeah, yeah. Um, who was a sexual predator was on top se- of having affairs with women who willingly had affairs with them because yes. they've had enough of them. But he was a sexual predator, particularly he with was. that young girl. He was, particularly with that yeah. young girl. I mean, he, uh, there was another woman who uh, had a very long, a very torrid affair with him. And... Um, it's only when we were reading through all the documentation we realised that she had lost her two children at a very young age. There was always something. There was a way in all the time. Um, but of course, he did the usual, you know, when he was accused. He was appalled that this was being levelled at him. Absolutely, I didn't do it. How could you possibly accuse me? I'm a, a Catholic priest. I'm a monsignor. Uh, and then he attacked he, the the victims, saying yeah. that they were mad, they were drunks, they took drugs, they, you know, they were That immoral. was particularly cruel, the way he attacked. It was. Yeah, it the, was. The, the, and of course, the one thing when I was reading the book that kind of was really annoying me was the fact that we've seen cover-ups in the Catholic Church that you would like to believe only happened in recent years. This story clearly highlights that the Catholic Church was covering up things in the 1800s. You know, the oh, affairs. Oh, yeah, they had a the long, mo- long experience of it. You know, yeah, I mean, Cardinal yeah. Manning, who you, who you, mm-hmm. who had been his direct boss. Yes. He had letters by the dozen on yeah, his desk. He did. Now, I, I feel sorry for Cardinal Manning because he was a good man. Yeah. To be fair. He to tried him. his best. He, he, he kind of tried his best, but really what he wanted to do was to protect the Catholic Church in England. There was a lot of hostility to the Catholic Church in England and he thought it was his job to do so. It was only when it really began to be clear that if the stories about Capel began to come out that the Catholic Church would be brought to his knees, that he finally acted. And when Capel was found guilty, he Manning set up this uh, top-secret investigation. When Capel was found guilty, what did he do? He went to Rome, fought his case for three years, and eventually they all said, even the Pope said, why doesn't he go and hide in America? And he did. He yeah, said he didn't hide. Knowing he went to America then yeah. and sort of reinvented himself. He did. He went on this huge because he had to make money. He went on this huge lecture tour from east to west, organised by his agent. It was all very professional, but word began to to leak out about what he was up to in the newspapers and the American newspapers were fearless about printing it. I think my, one of my favourite stories is when he was attending the New York Police Inspectors and Superintendents Gala Ball in Delmonico's Ritzy Restaurant, right? There were 200 plus guests, 600 bottles of wine were drunk. 
of which Capel seemed to have had quite a lot because there was an eyewitness wrote to Cardinal McCluskey of New York saying, this man was the drunkest man I have ever seen. He was paralysed with drink. But then what's even funnier is Capel writes to McCluskey, kind of explaining what went wrong, and he said, it was the smoke. (laughs) It was the smoke. It has always had this effect on me. I was dizzy. My mind went blank. I couldn't remember the speech I was going to give. And you kind of think, oh, you could could, could have come up with something better than that. Surely. And particularly when so many people were witnessing the the amount amount that he had to drink. Uh, He, he, okay, he... So many women fell in love with him and, and we know that he had so many affairs and we're not talking about an era that would have had uh, contraception uh, available. Do you think he had children or is there a possibility that there could be many people alive today who could actually trace their roots back to him? Well, there are two particular references to that. Yes, is the, the short yeah. answer. They would have to yeah. to be. There was a letter from a, a woman. The, he had a crowd of peop- women around him called the Pious Ladies. And they split when all this came out. And one of them, or two in particular, started to tell tales. And she spoke, she gave a list of nine women. And in it, uh, that he had had affairs with. And one, there was a reference to, oh, her baby for this year is Monsignor Capels. He also came to her looking to find out if there there was a way he he basically looking for a way to have uh, get procure an abortion yeah might as well say yeah. it out like that's that's what he did and then there was another story of a, a little child called Alfred Bernard Alfred Fairfield who was born to an Irish woman she was brought over in secret she had the baby within hours the child was taken off. Capel promised to look after the child, never did, never got money, to, it looks like, to look after the child, never paid it over. And we, we could track poor Bernard for a number of years and then he disappeared. But Colm was convinced that that was a child of Capel's who yeah. had been conceived in Ireland. I wasn't so sure because we didn't have the um, hard evidence. Didn't have the hard evidence, but yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He, he but must but have. there has to have been a lot of children. <laughs> there, there really has. And then his ending. He ultimately died in a bishop's house. He did, <laughs> which was very lucky for the Catholic Church because I was looking forward to getting his death cert just to yeah. see exactly where he died. But he did die in the bishop's house, Bishop of Sacramento, who was an Irishman, and he kind of allowed him. By the way. Before this, he had spent 25 years in California on a ranch living with the wealthy divorcee, just in case you thought he was living yeah. in life. Um, but when he died, Bishop, uh, sorry, Bishop Grace had allowed him to make sermons and all that. He wasn't allowed to practice as a priest. But when he died, he gave him a great big send off. Um, all the priests were brought in, church decorated in purple, big sermon, big ceremony. And uh, Cable was even buried in a purple coffin. And where is he buried? He's buried in a local church in Sacramento. Is he? Yeah, okay. a very small little little cemetery. And do we there. know what happened to any of the rest of his family, his other family members? Well, what's very interesting, he had a brother called Arthur and Arthur became extremely wealthy. Like, I mean, very, very wealthy. He had a son called Arthur Capel. And if you know anything about Coco Chanel, you'll know that the most important man in her life was a man called Boy Capel. 
and that was the Monsignor's nephew. Whoa. He gave uh, Chanel, he funded her business from the very start and he was a wonderful dresser. If you go on the internet, you'll see, oh, he was impeccably dressed and he kind of, he provided the inspiration for her designs. Yeah. So that was Capel's nephew. But if you go to Coco Chanel's apartment in Paris, there is sitting on the mantelpiece is the bust, the bust of the Monsignor. <laughs> that had been in his house. That had been in his house, which had been auctioned off. Yeah. yeah. So it's incredible to think, you know, from Ardmore, yeah. there's this connection to Coco Chanel. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. the it's, best designer it's, in the it world. It just ever. is. It's an absolutely incredible book. As you say, hours mm. and hours of research mm. and then you do all the research and you've got, you then have to try and put You have it. to make it into a story that yeah. you can read. Yeah. Because I hadn't read it in about a year actually because of everything that happened and my jaw was dropping at yeah. all the little interesting stories that I had kind of forgotten about like one of the ones that I love I'll be very brief when Cable was in America he bewitched yet another woman called Alice Bowler from Cincinnati very wealthy again she was so impressed by him that she gave him a thousand dollar check for the Pope's charity Peter's Pence now, in those days, maybe you remember the days, I certainly yeah, do, when checks, came, well, yeah. when checks came back, oh, when yeah. they had been cashed, yeah. you see. Yeah, yeah, you're right. So and the yeah. check yeah. came back to Alice. Yeah. She looked at it and saw that it had been cashed in Tiffany's <laughs> in New York. So she got in contact with <laughs> Tiffany's saying, sorry, what, what was this used for? And it was to buy a diamond bracelet. Which she gave to another woman. Absolutely. Oh, it's just the man. <laughs> the man was unreal. It's a terrific read. It, it really is available, as they say, in all good bookshops. Everywhere. OK, uh, it is called The Monsignor, The Man, His Mistresses and The Missing Money. <laughs> it is fantastic. Have you another book on the way? No, no, the cupboard is bare. Is this is, is the last one. Yeah, yeah. I, it just wouldn't be the same without Would it Tom. Not? No, no, because no. we spent so much time. Like we did lots of other things. Yeah, uh, particularly following Cork GAA. Yeah, because uh, as you know, Colin was from from y'all. But um, no, it just wouldn't. No, Tom had a great. He knew what was what would work and what wouldn't. Yeah. And we could have an argument over whether it would or wouldn't work, which he always won. But and he was right most yeah. of the time, all of the time actually. And we'd have great times walking on the beach and y'all talking about how we'd approach stuff, how we'd do it. So no. No. No hankering to write a novel no. or anything. No. no. No, not really. And no. funnily enough, I think even if Colin were still around, I think this would have been the last one. Do you? Right, yeah, because yeah. they take a lot they take over your life. Yeah. You know, which is fine up to a certain extent. But then there comes a time where you want to you say, well, I want to do other things. How know? many books in total did, did Colm write? I think about, we kind of lost count, about 28, 29. Was it? Yeah. So it was huge. And, and of all of them, the ones on all of the mm-hmm. various saints, they're just always so fascinating. Which has proven to be the most popular? Are, 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 oh, Padre Pio. Padre Pio and the yeah. Little Flower, actually, yeah. to be fair. Um there was something about both of them. They were terrib- terribly kind of charismatic yeah. uh, people in their own right. And, you know, the little flower in particular, I worked on that with Column. She was she had such a wonderful philosophy about yeah. how everything matters. Every little thing that you do, you can use for it's 
hackneyed phrase, but for the greater glory. You can, you can use that to be good and to help people. Uh, and, and in turn, that will help you. And of course, Padre Pio is just such an extraordinary man with, you know, there were so many stories about people who had been helped by him over the years. So. And to this day, the devotion to Padre Pio is... It's extraordinary. Yeah. Oh, it's still there. And that's the one thing that I was mm-hmm. thinking of when I was reading this mm-hmm. book on the Monsignor. You know, the other books mm-hmm. were all about other people within mm-hmm. the Catholic Church. The difference. Yeah, I there mean, is. There's chalk and cheese, like Padre yeah. Pio's life versus the Monsignor's exactly. life. Exactly. And it's funny about when I was talking, uh, I mentioned about how Colm's finger was always on the pulse. Yeah. I remember when he was trying to get his the first book on Padre Pio published, which would have been about 2007, I think. And uh, he approached the he, the publisher he was dealing with at the time, who was Scottish, and he said, you know, I'd like to yeah. uh, write a book on, on Padre Pio. And the guy was Scottish and he said, have you been down in Temple Bar recently? <laughs> Call him. And <laughs> Colm said, yeah, yeah, that's OK. Eventually... Through through no good design on the, the yeah. he kind of bounced the publishing company into publishing yeah. it, and it was a runaway yeah. bestseller. Because sometimes what what people think will work doesn't work, yeah. and what people think, you know, that that hasn't got a hope, it does work. Um, yeah. So I thought that. I think that kind of pinpoints. And I, I think certainly for for us here in Ireland, mm-hmm. I think whatever it is that affinity to Padre Pio is is still there. It, uh, yeah. yeah, and I don't think it will diminish. Yeah. I really don't. Yeah. Even after all these years, you know, that's however many years ago, yeah. it's still as strong as ever, and it's wonderful. You know. Okay, so the book is a Monsignor out in all good bookshops. Mm-hmm. And how is life with you? Are you still in in Ring, or where are you? Yeah, living? still in Ring. Had yeah. a lovely drive up. I was um, there's a particular spot on the road that we turn, you know, and we have to turn one way because we're heading to Cork. And uh, Colm and I would have been doing that trip together this morning. And yeah. it was a bit sad that he wasn't there. But yeah, it's tough. You've got to keep on going. Yeah. You know? And you're keeping busy, are keeping you? Keeping busy. Yeah. 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 Gardening. I did a bit, a little bit of a cookery course. It was did only you? a half a day, but I actually learned how to peel an onion. <laughs> There's a way to, now, there's oh, an no, act hey, to peeling an onion. Tell us, you, have we been peeling onions wrong is what you're saying? Well, no, I didn't, I've never peeled this. <laughs> well, yes, um, you, um, you you chop them in the middle, right? Yeah. From north to south, as it were. Yeah. You, and then you take the skin off that way and then you chop them. Um, and does that stop your down. eyes from running? No, it doesn't, no. but it's very efficient. So if you have lots of onions to, to chop... chop You'll get them done in about a tenth of the time. Okay, well <laughs> and it's from the that is from the the premier cookery school in Cork. So I can't. I'm not, not going to name no, them. I but can, you know I, who they I, are. I know exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Well done. Listen, it's a pleasure as always. Uh, somebody's asking: mm-hmm. Is is Una keeping up to date with the comings and goings of her former uh, employer, RT? Are you oh, saddened by everything that's been going I am. on there? I, it is. Yeah. It really is so sad, but. You know, it's the situation has got so serious that, you know, really radical action has to be taken. You know, I I wish them the best, but you can't keep on losing money. You know, know. it is about money. Uh, I, I remember when I joined, which was, you know, nearly 40 years ago at this stage, there was yet again another big inquiry into RTE and it was the... The bottom line was you can't have as many people as you're employing at the moment. And, you know, 
that hasn't changed in all yeah, that time. And, but during all of the controversy when it was going on, watching the news readers mm. having to every second night. Is, is that hard as oh, a news? Oh, that's awful. Yeah. That's the worst story. Uh, that's what I used to do. Everybody in RTE dreads having to do an RTE story because the pressures are enormous. And, at the, and they have to be seen to be even handed about it. In fact, they have and to they be were. seen more than... But they were. Yeah. I mean, they took... I mean, can you imagine doing a, a story and on bringing your, your employer? Boss in. Yeah, no, I couldn't. I absolutely <laughs> it's really couldn't. And, and particularly when so they had to, to admire the, them. They had to do the live, you know, when Kevin Backers yeah. was... Oh, God, it was, yeah. it was really tough going. OK, um, Anthony in Limerick says, brilliant words from Uno Hagen. I have a real deep, deep faith in uh, Padre uh, Pio. I always go to Our Lady of Lourdes Church in Limerick. Father John Wall there is a very good man. Lovely words. Really enjoyed Una's uh, interview. Thank you for that, Anthony. OK, we leave it there. Listen, I could keep going and talking to you all day, but I have to press on. But listen, thank you for that. And uh, I'm sad to think this is going to be the last time we're going to chat because of the book, but we'll have you back in about something else. I just I just know we will. But Una Hagen, thank you for joining us in studio. Thank good you morning to you. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. Want great advice? You know who to talk to. CMIG Mike has sent in a text and he would like to mention it is 97 days to Santa Claus's uh, arrival. Just in case people want to know about that, we're under the 100 days uh, to Christmas. I did see in the supermarkets at the weekend the tubs of sweets seem to have appeared while I was away on holidays. Didn't see a selection box yet and I don't want to see a selection box yet but I suppose maybe somebody's already come across as selection boxes because certainly at the end of July I'm sure we were getting the calls in to say the Halloween stuff was out in a lot of the shops. Let's get Halloween out of the way before we even think about uh, Christmas but I know for some people, people like to plan well in advance and whether Mike is one of those or not but 97 days if you want to start a countdown calendar to Christmas this year. Thank you for your text, uh, Mike. Still getting in texts and commentary um, Friday night's Late Late that I asked people if they watched it, what did they make of the first brand new uh, Late Late with Patrick Keelty, Patricia... Uh, Morning Patricia regards the late late. Fresh new faces would have been nice as guests, not the same ones that we see all of the time. It wasn't that long ago, says this texter, that Tommy Tiernan actually had Patrick Keelty on his own chat show. Once I saw the two Johnnies, I said enough and I switched it off. Uh, thanking you. I did say you can't please all of the people all of the time. Eileen in Kilkenny, listening to us, I'm assuming online, said I was very disappointed with the Late Late Show. I thought it was quite boring, says Eileen. I felt Patrick Keelty was dead in the way he was talking, deadbeat, downbeat. Uh, there was no bit of life in him. Bring back Ryan Tuberty any day. But of course, there'll be no bringing back Ryan Tuberty because Ryan Tuberty, this time last year, started the season. And then as the season went on, he made the decision that he was packing it in. We were not to know this time last year how his year was going to unfold uh, for sure. Uh, maybe give Patrick Keelty a chance because if my memory serves me right, when Ryan Tuberty took over from Pat Kenny, we had people saying the same thing. And we certainly had people saying when Pat Kenny took over from Gay Byrne, uh, nobody was happy with it. But then we kind of, we, we grow to love them, I think is, is what generally speaking happens. Now, I mentioned on board Planola uh, when I was chatting with MEP Billy Keller 
I mentioned the fact that on board Panola had rejected an application for the construction of the, the Shannon liquefied natural gas terminal that was due to be built in uh, North Cork. Now, the one thing about this, whether you agree or disagree with it, it has been dragging on for years and years and years. And anyway, finally, uh, on board Panola has rejected the application. Well, Michael in and Billy Kelleher thinks the reason that I mentioned it to Billy Kelleher today was I heard him say on uh, Friday night that he thought it was extremely short-sighted of on board uh, Planola and he saw it as a major blow to Ireland's future energy security. Well, that has prompted a WhatsApp from Michael in Castletown Bear to say, with reference to that LNG plant in North Kerry, I remember back in 2008 or possibly 2009 being over in Brussels and a Scottish a Scottish MEP lent me a report to have a quick look at overnight. It was, it was commissioned on that project in North Kerry. And the frightening thing about it was it said in this report that one accidental spark and an area the size of Munster could be wiped out. It would be worse than what happened at Nagasaki. That I will never forget. Remember the Whitty Island disaster, says Michael, and who can forget that? The danger with uh, gas. There are many more ways to get gas, thanking you. And in fairness, Billy Keller did say we're trying to wean ourselves off gas, but it's what we do in the short term because we just seem to take so long to make any decisions and put anything in a place. And we saw with the energy crisis we're already living through at the moment. And that can only get get better. You'd like to think it, it will. I could only get worse. You'd like to think it will get better, but gut feeling tells me it's going to it's going to get worse before it gets uh, better. Oh eight one eight one zero three one zero three. Also in on texts and uh, WhatsApps. I'm just trying to take a look at some of the the. Oh, this is um when somebody was pointing out why did the government need to send the three coalition leaders and I pointed out there's actually four well the three coalition leaders and the Minister for Health has also gone why do we need to send all of them to America they've gone over for the UN that's on the UN the United Nations General Assembly is on at the moment and they're all doing speaking at various events or taking part in various uh, discussions and one listener felt you know can we really afford to be sending that many people Tony says Patricia why why will this government not simply uh, cop on? We have a country where people are starving. We have a country in uh, chaos and they're all off, according to Tony, having a great time in America. Tony feels it's like a holiday to them. They don't have to worry about money or about the cost. Well, they dispute that, Tony, and say that they're working while they are in the States. And just on the government saving money, spotted this on the front page of the Examiner today because it was something we referenced a few weeks ago on the programme. And this is the sale of the iconic Connor Pass in uh, Kerry. And of course, when we spoke about it, when we knew that the Connor Pass was going, going up for sale, there was a big push by people to say, look, the state, the government should be really buying this. Well, it seems what's now happening is the state is negotiating the sale of the Connor Pass, but they're not willing to pay what the current owner is looking for. Uh, the parcel of land in County Kerry, it takes in one of the most panoramic driving routes in this country. It went on the market last month and the owner is currently looking for 10 
million euro and that works out at just over 7,000 euro uh, an acre. Now since it went up on sale, a petition calling on the government to purchase the Connor Pass, rewild it and then make it into an absolutely stunning national park that's amassed it seems over 20,000 signatures because I remember when we started talking about it we mentioned that this petition was about to go live so over 20,000 people have signed that particular uh, uh, petition Now, while the Minister of State for Parks and Wildlife, that's Malcolm Noonan, he seemingly has engaged with the seller's agent and it's understood that the government is not willing to pay even close to what has been demanded by the current owner, who is an American gentleman by the name of Mike Noonan. Sources say the land is not in good ecological condition and the public money would then have to be spent or could be spent on other pockets of land that would and are more biodiversity rich. So if they have that kind of money to spend, there's other places they could be buying instead. Now, it is understood that the department would be willing to pay under half, somewhere between two and €3,000 an acre. Negotiations for the 1,400 acres, which includes... 400 acres of forestry it's been described as slow and it may take a number of months to conclude and in August shortly after the Connor Pass was put up on the market the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar at the time when he was asked about it he said he wanted to see Ireland expand its national parks but he did say at the time that they would only pay a reasonable price that they certainly weren't going to be fleeced in any way he said I think it's fair to say this was now back in August that the state won't be paying 10 million for the Connor Pass but we would be interested in talking to the owner about a reasonable price because he would like to see us extend our national uh, parks and our national parks of course have and continue to be a wonderful uh, public asset so it's still on the table and I suppose the it it will be, it'll bode well for the government if there isn't a lot of people interested in buying it and I can't see there being because of the nature the rugged nature of the land I can't see there being a big queue of people to buy the Connor Pass so that could work in the government's favour but certainly they're not going to pay 10 million they they are watching what they are spending which I think all of us will agree uh, is uh, good news and talking of somebody else who's watching what they're spending seeing as we've been talking about RTE and uh, we've mentioned the the, the late, late show. Um, RTE has the, this broke. I, I, think I either saw it on holidays or I was just back from holidays last week, and I remember my jaw dropped when I read this particular piece online. Um, and this is to do with RTE putting out to tender the job for a photographer for Fair City. And it came with just a draw dropping uh, price. Uh, seemingly, this, the, the plans have been suspended. <laughs> they haven't been terminated, they've just been uh, suspended. RTE had revealed that the public broadcaster wanted to spend €240,000 for a four year contract to retain a professional photographer to capture what would be still images of Fair City while in production. So, 240,000 over four years, that means the photographer would be paid 60,000 euro a year to go in and take these still photographs while the production was running. Now, it seemingly, you know, obviously went out on the tender what work is in, involved. The role was to uh, for a photographer to work 20 hours a week 
over a course of three days and it was to produce a maximum. There were a maximum of 16 stills. So they had to guarantee that they would take 16 decent photographs over the 20 hours over uh, three days. But now a statement has come out yesterday from RTE and they say they have decided to suspend the current public tender process for Fair City Photography. The decision obviously comes as well last week after the announcement that was made by the Director General, the new Director General, Kevin Backhurst. Remember last week he put an immediate recruitment freeze in place and he also said that all discretionary spending was to be stopped. Um, RTE now in their statement say they will pause the tender process and take time to review the volume of photography required, the length of the con the contract among other considerations and they say a revised tender document will be issued once these decisions have been made. Kevin Backer said while quality professional photography is essential to enable uh, RTE to promote the programmes and engage audience. He says it's not possible for RTE to commit to a four-year contract or to this level of spend given the challenges that the organisation currently face. So he says we've decided to take time to consider the best way to balance the need of the series with the need to reduce costs where we uh, can. And it just, uh, I mean, listen, photographers have a unique um, skill set and I'm not saying anyone can just take pictures because they can't, but it does seem very excessive to be offering somebody a 20-hour contract, 60,000 euro. It seems like a terrific job to go in and work over three days to do your 20 hours and you get 60,000 euro a year and you're guaranteed it for four uh, years. And I, I, I mean, I, I'm not a big follower of Fair City and I'm just wondering when they take these photographs, how the photographs are, are used for promotion purposes. I mean, you know... How, how high quality do the photographs need to be? Is there not anyone within RTE that they could give a decent camera to? Because, you know, sometimes when you've got very expensive cameras and if you point it in the right direction and you set it all up properly, you can get really good photographs. I wonder, are there other ways uh, to do this? But that does seem uh, very excessive. And it also got me thinking, if this is a new uh, contract, was there formerly somebody employed on the Fair City set, because Fair City has been going for many, many years. Have they always employed a photographer and did it always come with that kind of wage uh, packet? It would be up to one of the Oroctus committees, I think, to look into that in more detail. But good to see that census has prevailed and they have suspended uh, plans. So let's wait and see what comes out for the new plans for the photographer to take the 16 photographs a week for Fair City. 0818 103 103. John Paul taking your calls. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council, where communities and businesses all across the county can get the support they need at corkcoco.ie. Mallow Adult Learning Centre, they are beginning a tutor training course in the parish centre at the end of this month. Now, they're still looking for tutors. Names can be submitted to the office. If you'd like to get more details, you can call into the office uh, in the Adult Learning Centre in Mallow 
on 022-426-42. A free course for babies under the age of six months and their parents or carers is being run at Bandon Family Centre on Mondays from 9.45 to 11.15am. It will cover topics such as early reading, singing, listening and lots more. The course is free and it's funded by the Cork ETB. If you'd like to book a place, call Louise on 86 025-3705. Mallow Active Retirement, they will hold their annual coffee morning for Marymount Hospice in the Mercy Centre tomorrow morning, 10am to 1pm. And they're pleased asking the public to support what is a very, very worthy uh, cause. And Chambali Moor Bingo, that will be on tomorrow night, 8 o'clock in Chambali Moor Community Centre. Jackpot, €2,500 in 46 calls are less. And the Bear Island Arts Festival, that runs from this Thursday, the 21st to the 24th of September, with an art exhibition, daily lectures, theatre with the Peninsula Players, there'll be photography workshops, writing workshops, military history tour, music performance and dancing at the Crossroads, all part of the Bear Island Arts Festival for 2023. Court Today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. For motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance, cmig.ie. Just to remind you, because I don't want people wasting time, uh, sending in texts are with questions for Annalise. Annalise is on a break. She's not with us this week. She will be back with us uh, next Monday, but we are instead in her slot. Going to be talking about meditation. I'm looking forward to, uh, to this and finding out more about uh, meditation. That's coming up in a few minutes. Let me go to some of your uh, comments into the programme. <laughs> well, I mentioned about the contract for the photographer for RTE to take the stills for Fair City. 60,000 a year over four years. 240,000 euro. Be a great job if you could get it. Somebody says, Patricia, my eight-year-old granddaughter could take photographs for RTE. She's amazingly good with a camera. <laughs> what next from RTE? Well, I think Sense, uh, well, I think Kevin Backhurst has proved that Sense has prevailed and they've um, put a pause on it. They put a pause on it uh, for the moment. And on the purchasing of the Connor Pass by the government and should the government uh, pay the asking price of 10 million for the Connor Pass, they kind of are in negotiations at the moment, but they're not willing to pay 10 million. They'll go under halfway because 7,000 an acre and what the government are suggesting this is the Minister of State for Parks and Wildlife. It'll come under his remit, Malcolm Noonan. He's saying that the land, uh, they'd offer somewhere between two and 3,000 an acre. So it'll be way less. It'll be under under 5 million even that the government would pay. Somebody said the, the state can't buy everything. It simply has to prioritise. If the state were to go out and buy something, then you'd have, have people shouting, what a waste of uh, money. They're damned if you do and damned if you uh, don't. And then someone else who wouldn't be that happy about the purchasing of the Connor Pass is Michael to say Patricia I've known a Kerryman to sell something that they I've never known a Kerryman to sell something that was money well the, well, the owner's not a Kerryman remember the owner is from uh, is from is American by the name of Mike Noonan anyway the government would want to thread extremely careful when even considering buying the Connor Pass Michael says I've travelled the Connor Pass many many times in all kinds of weather and yes absolutely. Absolutely. It has panoramic views. 
But you could end up spending millions on it without it being fruitful. It is simply too open to the elements. Well, I think the plan has always been to uh, make it into a national park. But you could be right um, on that point as well. If it does come into state ownership, will there then be a responsibility to start doing up all of the roads? And could it end up being really, really an expensive spend at the end of the day? Yeah, I suppose only time uh, will tell. Someone on the pictures for Fair City. Who takes the pictures of the show? Uh, do they cost a similar... Uh, who takes the pictures on other shows? Do they cost a similar amount? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I, mean, I think a lot with RTE that has come out since the whole Ryan Tupperty tobacco started. A lot of, we're seeing and hearing a lot of expenses and things that get that RTE covered that we didn't know about in the past. So it, it, it's a valid question that you're asking. If it's done for Fair City, do they do it for other shows as well? I don't know. But maybe it's the fact that it's their only soap opera and, so, and they make that in-house. Maybe that's the only show. But do they have, there are photographs taken of, of presenters. I mean, I'm assuming they hire professional photographers for that. But how much money is spent overall on photography would be a good question for one of the committee members on the Oireachtas uh, to ask and maybe to see if they could dig into that. Thank you uh, for your text to 86 103 103. And Heidi's on about fuel prices. I'm sure she'll be a lovely holiday. I did indeed. Thank you for asking. We are already in a crisis when it comes to fuel prices. It has to be stopped. The hike in prices, I believe, like many, there is war on the motorist and on our car. Look at how much more we pay out just to travel a short distance, be it to work, to go to the shops, maybe to drop the children to school. It is outrageous. Where are our TDs in this respect for our problems? The roads have potholes, uh, hedges are overgrown. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. And petrol, certainly, as I say, I was away for the bones of two weeks and I filled up the car yesterday. I couldn't believe in the two weeks I was away how much petrol has uh, gone up by. But I did notice when I was away in Spain and we didn't hire a car when we were away, but I kept a look at garage prices and they are paying the same as what we are, are paying here. And I was chatting with uh, a friend of mine who we were in Ibiza, who lives, she's been living in, in Ibiza now for many, many years. And I was chatting with her about electricity prices and she said their electricity prices have gone through the roof so we're, we're not the only country when it comes to high fuel and high energy costs but it's how much longer it can all go on for now I know before I went away on holidays we were starting to see some kite flying for the budget and certainly there's more and more now being leaked out as always happens uh, with the budget and that's one of the things that has been men- mentioned that there will be energy credits for households will they give as many energy credits as they gave last year was it 600 in total did we get three 200 unit euro energy credits I don't know if they'll give as many but they certainly are talking about energy uh, credits they're also uh, Coalition uh, leaders are also considering a 15 euro in- increase for pensioners, for carers and for people with uh, disabilities. The 
senior coalition sources are saying that the cost of living crisis, they accept that the cost of living crisis hasn't abated. We're as bad this year as we were this time last year when we were looking at the budget for 2023 and they're saying that last year's budget is is very much going to have to be uh, replicated. They accept that families are still uh, struggling. Um, People living on social welfare are struggling. They're going to need increases. They're looking at um, giving more lump sums like what they did uh, last year and the government favours giving households one-off lump sum payments like they did last year but there's eight categories of people who received double payments including things like fuel allowance, the living alone allowance and child benefit but I did read that um, Social Justice Ireland, they've already come out and said that core social welfare needs to increase by €25 a week. I can't see them going quite that high. I know the Fianna Gael thinking the Social Protection Minister because it'll fall under her remit, Heather Humphreys, she said that the main people she wants to support are the pensioners, the carers, people with disabilities and working uh, families. She says that inflation remains high. She says we're listening to people and they understand that certain groups will need additional assistance. And she was the first to float the notion that the weekly increase for social welfare would be €15. It wouldn't be €25, which is what Social Justice Ireland is uh, calling for. Now, other budget measures, these are ones that I have to say are just being floated at the moment. These aren't guaranteed, but these are the ones that are being floated at the moment. They're Talking about cost to the USE, the universal social charge, anyone at work hates the universal social charge. As many of our listeners have pointed out, it was introduced as a temporary measure and it was certainly far from being uh, temporary. They're looking at increases in the rent tax credit, even though not everybody claimed that over the last two years. But anyway, they're talking about looking at that again. They're looking at tax changes for the smaller landlords. They're looking for an expansion of child benefit. I heard Heather Humphreys last week mention that one of the things she's talking about doing is if you have a child doing the Leaving Cert, as soon as they hit the age of 18 and because of transition year, many Leaving Cert students are 18 as they go into their final year in school and they lose their child benefit. Whereas what they're talking about now is the child benefit would remain in place right up to when they do their leaving search in June and I think that would be welcomed by many, many families. They're looking at mortgage interest uh, relief, the energy credit that I mentioned for all households and they're also looking at extending the free school book scheme for secondary school students. Now that I don't know what the cost would be on that but that for any family with secondary school uh, students will tell you the price of books are crazy crazy uh, money parents are uh, spending out. So what's now going on is You've got the the main two finance ministers. You've got Michael McGrath and the public expenditure minister, Pascal Donoghue. They've already began their bilateral uh, meetings with all of the ministers because all of the ministers will go and say what their department is looking for. So they're sitting down with all of the ministers and then they'll start to frame budget 2024, which will be announced in uh, October. Heather Humphreys, when she was asked about social welfare, she said she wants to be very ambitious. She said, I know that there are pressures out there. I know the restraints. She says she's spoken with all of the different interest groups. She's heard all of their views and she said, 
says, I will be ambitious about what I want to achieve. But she says, I'm very conscious that the cost of living has gone up. She said, when you go into a shop, the prices of groceries have gone up. So she says that all options will be looked at, whether it's an increase in the basic core social welfare or whether there will be targeted payments or lump sum payments are universal payments like where everybody gets the 200 euro, everyone that uh, has a house and is connected to electricity, everybody gets that uh, 200 euro. And of course, the fuel allowance uh, scheme that opens this week. Anybody who's entitled to fuel allowance. And, you know, in fairness, we might knock, people might knock the government uh, and, and we might do it on this programme as well. But more and more households now are entitled to the fuel allowance um, as to the changes that were brought in last year. There's something like over 400,000 households will benefit from the expansion that was uh, introduced. And Leo Varadkar has already indicated that the government will not push up petrol and diesel prices any further. Uh, they've now made the commitment that the final cut made to the excise duty on fuel. We had one that went up a few, uh, went back on a few weeks ago. There was another one due to be in, reinstated at the on the last day of October. Leo Varadkar has indicated that that won't go ahead. So that gives a little bit of comfort but watching the prices of petrol and diesel, it's, it's isn't it creeping up near the two euro uh, mark again? Very, very expensive. You're listening to C103's Cork Today podcast. Phone and text lines are currently closed. I'm going to give a quick, quick mention to a text that's just come in from Anne. Thank you, Anne, for this. To say, um, I was out driving this morning between Bandon and Kinsale. Two horses ran in front of my car, had to swerve to avoid them and nearly hit the ditch. It was along the Kilbritton Road. Would you please put a message out on your radio for the owner of these horses to be more careful with securing their animals that could have been killed? Luckily, Susanna wasn't speeding at the time and I had friends of mine who were involved in a very, very serious road accident uh, because of something like that, a horse that got out. So uh, please folks, uh, be careful out on the roads and to owners of horses, make sure that they are in secure fields. 0818 103 103. Now as I mentioned earlier, Annalise Drusello normally joins us on a Monday. She's on a bit of a break. So instead today we're going to talk about meditation and the benefits of meditation and joining me is Hazel O'Sullivan who's founder of the Yoga Tree, which is based in uh, Cork. Good afternoon to you, Hazel. Hello, Patricia. You're, Thank you for having me on. Well, you're very welcome uh, to the programme. I suppose the most obvious question is, explain to us what is meditation? Absolutely. And I think, you know, often people um, imagine meditation to be, you know, sitting on a mountain and just emptying your mind. But really, I suppose, essentially, it's just a practice of staying present and being mindful for a certain period of time. And I like to always describe it like like the tabs open in your laptop. You know, if you had 100 tabs open in your laptop, it would be very overwhelming. So when we meditate, we close off those tabs and we just quieten our mind. So essentially, really, it's just a practice of just focus thinking, quietening the mind and just kind of shutting off from all the all, all the distracting noise um, that can be going on in our mind. So, uh, yeah, and there's the, so many the different key, types of meditation yeah, as well. So. And, the, and, and the key there is, I, I love the idea of sitting in a quiet space and trying to meditate. But I find, yeah. Hazel, my mind just keeps wandering. How do you, wh- wh- what are the tips for blanking out the mind to get into that really peaceful yeah. space? And absolutely. And I think that's probably one of the most common questions I get asked, you know, is how does one empty their mind? And I suppose that's the beauty is that you're not actually emptying your mind. You're just focusing on one thing. 
So, you know, for some people, um, maybe their meditation practice is to go for a nice quiet walk that they're completely present and they're mindful. You know, others, it's the practice of yoga. So it's like a moving meditation. But say if you were going for more kind of a traditional type of seated meditation, you know, for a lot of people starting off, it can be nice to listen to guided meditation, maybe just a simple breathing meditation or maybe um, a body scan meditation. So you're just you're just, you know, simply listening to the voice and just following the guide, you know, um, and, and to be honest, you know, with, you know, for myself, I have young kids. I love the idea of having a quiet five minutes to myself. And I'm sure many people are the same, you know, just to give yourself that well-deserved quiet time just to relax, you know. So what are the benefits? Um, yes. What are the benefits of it? Yeah. So, I mean, for many people, they'll get different benefits. But, you know, overall, really, the main benefits is that it's amazing for reducing anxiety, depression. It's great for improving your sleep, your overall well-being. Um, many, many, you know, CEOs and business people use it to improve their clarity and their focus. It's great for chronic pain. I could keep going on. Headaches um, and a whole host of things for your immunity. Um, so a whole host of, of benefits, you know, um, I guess there's been, you know, a lot of research shown that what meditation does is that it develops certain parts of your brain. So the parts of your brain that are responsible for memory, compassion, empathy. And then what it does is, is it shrinks the parts of your brain that are associated with fear, stress and anxiety. So it really helps to activate and to develop those good parts of our brain that we want to work. So, um, so, huge, yeah, so it's huge, very interesting. Huge benefits. Shoot, shoot. And, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, a massive undertaking of sitting quietly for a half an hour. It could just be a five minute meditation, you know, and it, it really pays off. Like one of our most popular, would you believe, one of our most popular meditations on the Yoga Street app is our one minute meditation before a Zoom call. So it's only one minute, just a one minute breath work just to quieten your mind when you're feeling moments of being stressed or anxious. So, you know, it, it, it definitely pays off for sure. And I, I have to say, I find breath work is because when you're trying to concentrate on the counting of the breath work, that does help you blank your mind. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, Patricia, because what it's doing is you're focusing on one thing. So rather than, as we said, all these hundred tabs open in our brain like a laptop, you know, you're quieting down to just one tab. You're just focusing on one thing and that's your breath work. And I always think breath work. I mean, I could talk about breath work for hours, but I always find that that's such a powerful tool to tap into your breath because when we're feeling stressed or anxious our breath is faster I mean even before I came on the call today I was just doing a bit of breath work because I felt my breath was getting faster so you know when you tap into your breath um, and you slow down your breath everything functions more efficiently you become calmer you become more focused um, so yeah the breath work is amazing would you would you practice a little bit Patricia are you I, new to it yeah, or would you no, I, I, I do, be I, I, do I do I do the breath work um, uh, quite a lot. I'm never too sure how many I'm meant to be counting for. I do a whole host of. I'll, I'll see something on social yeah. media. And go, oh, I'll pick that one now. And uh, because because <laughs> there's all different tips. What's the most common one? What's the one you use? Yeah, absolutely. And there is so many different types of breath work. Um, you know, one that I'm loving at the moment is called the box breath. And I love this because it's really simple. And there is so many different types that sometimes it gets a bit overwhelming, like all the different types of meditation. But with the box breath, the way that it works is that, you know, for example, if you if you pick a count of four, you breathe in for four, you hold the breath for four, like the top of your square, and then you exhale down for four. 
and then you pause again for four. So it's like the four sides of a square of a box. So you breathe in for four, pause for four, exhale for four, and then again, pause for four. And it's really simple. It allows us to go into that parasympathetic nervous system where we're kind of more rested, renewed, and we're in that digest mode and breaking that stress loop. So that simple one might be nice. I'd love to hear how you get on if you try yeah, it out. Yeah, yeah, um, That's an easy one to remember, the four, four, four and four. Uh, somebody wants to know exactly. uh, what would Hazel recommend is the best time of the day to do a daily meditation? Oh. That is a brilliant question. Um, I suppose ideally first thing in the morning because your mind is already quite, you know, your mind is already um, quiet. So, you know, you're already halfway there. Whereas as the day goes on, our mind gets busier. But what I would say as well, you know, if you're looking to start a daily uh, meditation habit or daily meditation routine is do pick the same time every day. So maybe it is when you wake up first thing in the morning and you just start off with a couple of minutes first and then you build up from there. But definitely, yeah, first thing in the morning or if you're looking to help to improve your sleep quality is to meditate when you're in bed to pop on. You know, what I find is, you know, I pop on my earphone because my poor husband, I'm sure, doesn't want to listen to me meditating. So I'll pop on, I'll pop on one earphone into my ear, I'll lie on my side and I'll listen to guided meditation to put me to sleep. Um, so that for me, I find a lovely time as well. And I think, you know, it's a time that everybody can find in their day when they're laying in bed already and it helps you to go into a deeper sleep, you know. So anytime that kind of suits people best, really, I think is the key. So, yeah, there's yeah. no Whatever there's no there's no right or wrong time uh, to meditate, basically. But what we often get is Absolutely. a question on Annalise's slot uh, is the problem some people have with, oh, I've always been a good sleeper. And then suddenly in the middle of the night, I'm starting to wake, uh, you know, that waking oh up and people looking at the clock and, and whatever. And we often get questions like that in. Can meditation work in like that in the middle of the night to try and get you back to sleep? Exactly. And that is such a brilliant question because I'm hearing this from people all the time, whether it's hormonal imbalances or hormonal changes or just, you know, you just find that you can get to sleep fine. But then in the middle of the night, you're wide awake, your mind is racing, you're thinking, oh, my gosh, I only have three hours more sleep to go before I have to wake up in the morning. And you're thinking about your day. So absolutely, this is a huge benefit of meditation. You can pop back on your earphone again and listen to a meditation that's specifically designed to get you back to sleep. Um, So rather than one, some meditations might give you energy, you know, they might boost your energy and you definitely don't want that in the middle of the night. (laughs) But one that helps you to go back to sleep is fantastic. And then it's it's like, you know, the brain is like a muscle, you know, you, you train it, the more you do it. the the more beneficial so you know there recently I was just chatting to a friend who has that exact same problem um same issue it's so common and I was saying to just listen to the same meditation every night when you wake up in the middle of the night the same meditation and then that's almost like a trigger to your mind right this is the time I must go back to sleep so within a short you know within once you do it regularly within a short period you'll start to get back to sleep very quickly, you know, because it'll trigger to the mind, right, this is my sleepy time, I'm going to go back to sleep. And it, it kind of allows you to have something to distract your mind rather than thinking about of the day ahead of you, it allows you to have something to focus your mind on and to focus on that, the voice in the meditation, you know, so yeah, because definitely the, because hugely the, beneficial. The worst thing that people can do when they wake in the middle of the night is to look at the clock and you're like, it's oh, two God. o'clock, it's three o'clock. I mean, it's just, it's, it's the worst thing, isn't it? Oh, unbelievable. And we're all guilty of it because we're thinking, oh, my gosh, how much more sleep do I have? Um, So, yeah, definitely. And rather than looking at the time, pop on a meditation, just a simple one, 
to get you back to sleep. Um, and, you know, even if it's just, even if you don't want to listen to a guided one, even like we're talking about the box breath or even just focusing your attention on your breathing. Um, another really common one that I've recorded for, for my members is one that you count from 50 down to zero. So you count each breath, you inhale 50, like you don't count for 50, but you it take a normal deep inhalation in through your nose and you say exhale 50, you inhale and then you exhale, say 49 and you just keep counting down. So it's kind of like counting sheep, yeah. but you're allowing your breath to be deeper. And, and that's a nice little one to try as well. You know, okay. just something to distract your mind um, from the racing thoughts. Stop that busy brain. Listen, you're a mind of information. I've really enjoyed our chat, <laughs> uh, Hazel. And you have an app, the Yoga Thank Tree app. I do, absolutely. We just, thank you so much for asking. We just launched it at the start of this year. So it's called the Unity. So it's on iOS and, um, and Android. So both Play Store and App Store. And it's just yoga. It's over 400 yoga videos, over 100 meditations, healthy recipes, all about just helping us to feel happy and feeling our best self. So yeah, that's what so we all great. need. Listen, thank you for that. Have a great <laughs> week and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Patricia. Bye-bye. I hope to talk to you again soon. Absolutely. God bless. Take care. That is uh, Helen O'Sullivan joining us from the Yoga Tree, which is based in uh, Cork. And if you want to check out her app, you can. And Annalise will be back with us at the same time next uh, week. That's where I wrap it up uh, for today. My thanks to John Paul McNamara for producing. Somebody wanted the name of Uno Hagen's book that she spoke about earlier. It's simply called The Monsignor. It is a terrific read. Uh, Nick with you for the afternoon Talk to you tomorrow, Tank. Court today on C103. With Corrigan Insurance's McCroom, now part of McCarthy Insurance Group. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie.